if you, ca if you think of evolutionary forces that drive speciation, that drive adaptation, and physiologically you think of the constancy of the internal environment, that means you have to maintain homeostasis. Life is rigged to provide compensation, compensatory mechanisms to make sure that constancy is maintained. And at the heart of those mechanisms is regulated cell death. I'm Jane Grogan, and I'm a scientist. I've been at this for more than 20 years now, and I think perhaps the only thing better than doing science is talking about the science. Lucky for me, I work in a place where I am surrounded by some of the brightest minds in research. However, there's usually not much time to just sit and talk. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be hosting this podcast. I'm going to step away from my lab today and chat with a colleague about some of the cool stuff we're working on, especially as we try to link these discoveries to new medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain, and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar, a podcast for biotech geeks and the people who want to hang out with them. So here's a question. We think of cells as vibrant living things. So why do cells die? Man, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. That's a great question. Why do cells die? One of the reasons is over the time, your DNA starts getting different kind of mutations, and those mutations impact how the cell functions. To regenerate the body? Yeah, you know, developmentally, some cells have to die to that the organism develops properly. Cells are just like us. We are born, we grow, and we die eventually. That's just regular life. We live because we die. That's the topic of today's discussion. With me to tackle this, not from a philosophical perspective, but from a deep biological one, is Vishva Dixit, an esteemed scientist and a member of the American Academy and National Academy, who's going to help us understand why cells grow, but more importantly, why they die. Welcome, Vishva. Thank you, it's a pleasure. So why do cells die? And when do cells die? So why do cells die? I guess the philosopher would say that cells die for the greater good. It's an altruistic form of death so that the multicellular organism can propagate. Because once you are exposed to life, you have to deal with various stresses. You have to deal with stresses of your own cells that are getting old and potentially harmful cells that are unable to now properly do the process that they were designed for. So you have to have a system to flush these harmful, de potentially deleterious cells out of the organism and replace them with newer cells. And that flushing system, the ability to get rid of those cells in an effective manner is done by implementing a cell death program in those cells, termed apoptosis. And those cells are then engulfed by their surrounding neighbors. And in a sense, a status quo is maintained, but now with new players. So let's back up all the way back to embryogenesis and as we're forming, right? So we start off as a group of round cells, essentially. Um, and as these divide, it's not just that 
the cell types are divided into what they're going to be, the liver, the hands, the heart or whatever, that the sculpting, the shape of those organs or the, the function of those organs happen because you have to eliminate cells that are no longer necessary. Yes, I think the classical example is the space between your fingers. Um, otherwise you'd have webbed hands if those cells didn't die. And you can extend that uh, line of thinking to other body parts. You cannot just build, you have to create uh, pathways uh, within the cell and uh, within the body and that's what uh, cell death allows you to achieve. So those of you who are listening know that I have a particular interest in both the immune system and cancer, as does Vishver as well. So the immune system gets activated, all our T cells expand, and at some point you need to contract that response or else we'll just, you know, kind of blow up in one big immune response. And so that's a very coordinated cell death. And then you have examples in, in cancer or tumour cells that something happens to the the status of a cell, so it goes through uncontrolled cell differentiation, um, and that's where cell death sometimes is not controlled. Yes, and uh, I think you could think of uh, cancer as a state where cell death pathways are attenuated, where it's very difficult or relatively difficult to engage cell death in cancer cells. and. Uh, that leads them to be resistant to various forms of uh, chemotherapy, for example. Uh, but out of that has uh, come a huge opportunity, which is uh, over the past uh, couple of decades, uh, scientists have understood the molecular basis of that resistance. And uh, that has to do with a family of proteins, termed the BCL2 proteins, uh, that confer resistance uh, to cancer cells, so they become resistant to cell death. Hi, Jane. Hey, Wellington. That's incredible. What else do these BCL proteins do? So the BCL2 proteins act like a balance on a seesaw, really setting the threshold from where a cell will be driven into cell death or programmed cell death, or differentiation and activation. The balance between differentiation and growth of a cell versus the death of a cell has to be a very fine-tuned and coordinated act. So what do we now know about the default state of a cell? I think for certain uh, cells, uh, for certain contexts, uh, the default uh, position is death. Uh, and we can say this with a certain degree of certainty because if we use the small molecule uh, BCL2 inhibitor and add it to cells in culture that are growing otherwise just fine, that they will proceed to die. That means these cells were being kept alive by BCL2. So quite surprising. You wouldn't think that a default position would be death, but that certainly seems to be the case with many classes of cells. They're not kept alive by trophic factors, then they will die. Jane, how does cell death play a role in your work as an immunologist? Many, many different ways. There's a few ways to think about this simply. One is that, remember we've talked about this in terms of the immune system expanding. So if you get a viral infection, sore throat, your glands swell up because your immune cells are growing and growing and growing into an army that can go out and fight that infection. If something doesn't turn that off, 
those cells will keep growing and growing until we blow up as one huge large lymph node, which doesn't happen. So there has to be a coordinated program that turns these cells off in a way that doesn't drive dramatic inflammation in the body. It's a very coordinated program cell death. The other side of the immune system is what happens to those cells? Something has to come and eat up all those dying or dead cells, which is also the role of the immune system. So we've been talking a lot in this series about communication and how cells communicate, proteins move around the body. And I think um, you know, what you're highlighting is that the cells are getting or intercalating many signals which are allowing them to bypass a death signal and actually survive. Mm -hmm. I think one of the uh, major functions of growth factor receptors is not only to signal growth, but is also to antagonize uh, death. So uh, uh, there's signaling pathways such as the PI3 kinase pathway that are, uh, when engaged by growth factor receptors, uh, will antagonize cell death. So a cell is intercalating signals from the membrane. How are these pathways regulating each other? Th that's a good question. I, I think it happens at uh, many levels. But at the end of the day, it's a simple equation of balance that if uh, growth factor signals are less than, are, or I should say are incapable of suppressing uh, death signals, then death predominates. Uh, I, without going into the complexities of all the components, I would say that uh, uh, when you have a trophic signal, by that I mean a signal that gives life, that signal is going to do two things. It's going to galvanize the cell growth component so that now you can enter cell cycle, you can divide, and you can create progeny. But that signal will at the same time, concurrently, con uh, will inhibit cell death, and it'll do that by uh, engaging members of the uh, BCL2 family. And it can engage them in various ways. It can engage them transcriptionally, so you get a transcriptional activation of BCL2 family members. It can engage them post-translationally, so that uh, phosphorylation events uh, allow the BCL2 family members to predominate in terms of their influence. When a cell receives a signal, how is it uh, intercalating the information to know whether to live or die? So it's intercalating the information at many levels, but we really need to back up and try to understand what exactly is the death signal and how it's propagated. So that's, uh, the death signal is best studied in situations where a singular event, like the engagement of a receptor, precipitates death. Now in the um, early 80s, there was a system of receptors that are now known as the death receptors, that when engaged by their cognate ligand, the cells would promptly die. And the question was that these receptors, when engaged, when activated, brought into motion a series of events that culminated in a catastrophic death of the cell. And there was a tremendous debate that uh, 
raged in the late 80s. People thought that uh, the way this works is that growth factor signals are simply switched off. And once you switch that off, it's like your car running out of gas. Then you just stop and die. So it's the idea of death by neglect. Death by neglect. And, uh, and, uh, and the debate was so furious because receptors were known to engage signaling or were known to signal by one of two mechanisms. They could either act as ion channels, so these would be uh, proteins that are involved in nerve conduction, altering the ionic potential of the cell, or the receptors can modulate phosphorylation events. And phosphorylation can be thought of as the on-off switch uh, in a cell. And at the risk of simplicity, one could say that when proteins are phosphorylated, they're in an on state, and when they're dephosphorylated, they're in an off state. And so all the research was concentrated on these two possible mechanisms that uh, death receptors must either function as ion channels or they must alter phosphorylation. So what was it exactly that made you jump into this? Well, I wanted to know uh, what was the exact nature of the death machine. What was it that killed the cells? Who were the assassins? And this led to a rather unexpected finding, which was that death receptors signaled not by altering ionic flows, so not functioning as uh, channels. They didn't function by altering phosphorylation, dephosphorylation events, but rather death receptors engaged a protease, directly engaged and activated a protease. And a protease can be thought of as an entity that's going to degrade other proteins. So what the death receptors were doing was, was activating an enzyme, a protease, that essentially worked like a blender in the kitchen it shattered the innards of the cell. And that is what led to this catastrophic death. So apoptosis. Apoptosis. And uh, these proteases, uh, we called them by various names at that time, including Yama for the Hindu god of death. But they are now known as uh, caspases. Uh, that signifies certain properties that they possess. So I think a big breakthrough for the field was the realization that uh, in mammalian vertebrate cell death, uh, the assassin was a protease. Can we talk about the different types of cell death and how they are regulated and why we need so many? I think that's a fundamentally important question, is what types of cell death are there and uh, how are they regulated and how do those forms of cell death happen? Uh, classically, one thinks of apoptosis as a form of cell death 
that is relatively inert for the organism because uh, when cells uh, undergo an apoptotic death, they essentially implode but retain uh, their contents in membrane-bound entities termed apoptotic bodies that are engulfed by surrounding cells. And since there's no spillage of intracellular contents, um, this form of death is not associated with inflammation. On the other hand, necrotic death, which is, uh, is associated with inflammation. And in necrosis, the cell essentially explodes. What I like to think about in my mind's eye is what happens when you run into the edge of a table. You get a severe bruise. And essentially what happened there was that the physical trauma led to the death, physical rupture of a few cells. And those cells now spewed out their contents and that led to the um, recruitment and activation of immune cells, which in this case would eventually lead to a healing process. I think this is really interesting too because um, we've talked a lot about the immune system in the context of T cells, this adaptive arm of the immune response that goes in in a very coordinated fashion to target, say, a cancer cell to eat it up. The kind of um, immune response that you're evoking here is much more to do with the innate immune response. So not only are cells dying, you've got an activating immune response. Yes, and it's uh, participating in the process of repair. If you think of uh, viral infections, it is often the case where uh, when a virus infects a host cell, the immune response will in fact directly activate the death proteases that I mentioned earlier, leading to an apoptotic death and an engulfment of the apoptotic remnants, including the virus and their eventual uh, degradation. So these two forms of death, necrosis, and apoptosis have really evolved uh, during uh, multicellular life to protect ourselves both from external insults and also from internal insults. The crux of both of these uh, mechanisms driven by cell death as the engine. And of course, in those circumstances where you have an inflamed environment, you can change the expression of your death receptors as well. So the cells become more susceptible to certain kinds of they apoptosis. Do. They, they do. We, we understand that less well, except at the level that uh, the expression of the uh, ligands, which would activate the death receptors, is highly regulated. So, for example, activated T cells will express the ligand to engage the death receptor so as to limit the number of activated T cells at any one time. Um, but there, there are probably other modes of regulation that are less well understood. I think the big breakthrough in the last five, seven years is that uh, necrotic death was always thought to be uh, 
a passive form of death in that it was never envisaged that there were molecular components, that there was actually a machine, a death machine that would also mediate necrosis. Jane, what are ligands? Well, in this context, ligands are proteins. We've talked about how proteins and interact with other proteins in, and communicate or transmit information. So in this context, a ligand is another protein that's interacting with a receptor on a cell surface, in this case a death receptor, which is sending a signal into that cell through that pathway. It's fascinating, right? You can take a cell in a given inflammatory environment and it has to make a decision about how it's going to die. It may make a decision to proliferate and, and provide some other growth factors to the environment, but the default really is for the cells to choose a way to die, and they're choosing that, quote unquote choosing that. Again, by intercalating different signals, they're going to be activating different cascade and signaling pathways within them. Yeah, I mean, and the way we look at it now, and it may not be a popular view, but certainly it's our bias, is that in uh, chronic human uh, conditions, chronic human diseases like inflammatory bowel disease or Alzheimer's disease or atherosclerosis, is that there is a smoldering uh, continuation of cell death that fuels the inflammatory fire. And uh, if that could in some way be stopped, then that would help extinguish uh, the drive the destructive drive that is uh, a characteristic of these diseases. Now this is far from proven, but that is sort of our quest, is to try to study that uh, hypothesis. It's also interesting to think about the homeostasis, right? So cells are dying all the time in us, even in a non-inflammatory environment. In normal homeostasis, how many cells are dying a day? Well, millions. Millions are dying. And, and I think the point you raise for uh, the point of homeostasis, which was uh, referred to as the, uh, by a French physiologist uh, at the turn of the last century as constancy of the internal environment, is a fundamental principle of biology. I think if you couple that to Darwin's evolutionary theory, in essence, you have captured biology. If you, ca if you think of evolutionary forces that drive speciation, that drive adaptation, and physiologically you think of the constancy of the internal environment, that means you have to maintain homeostasis. It, could, it ranges from body temperature to immune homeostasis. That uh, the system, the machine, life, is rigged to provide compensation, compensatory mechanisms to make sure that constancy is maintained. And when constancy fails, when your blood sugar goes up or your temperature goes up, that is actually a failure of many systems because uh, this, the, the architecture of biological systems is compensation. If one system fails, another one compensates. So uh, what you touch upon is, is, uh, is essential for the understanding of biology. I think it's too that there's homeostatic sta status and then there's the dysregulated status. The body is constantly trying to get itself back down to a back homeostatic to the status level. Quo. Yeah. Yes, back to the status quo. 
And at the heart of those mechanisms is regulated cell death. And there's much we don't understand about exactly how that happens. Why doesn't it overshoot? How is how are cells counted? There's just uh, basic uh, questions like that that uh, remain unaddressed. Right. It's the how many times can a cell divide? Why does it stop? Why does it stop within a certain organ? Why does it then perhaps cells migrate to somewhere else and start cell growth in another place or they get actually killed in another environment? I mean, I would say, speaking in general biologic principles, that when we think of chronic disease states uh, that plague modern society, that there is very little, if any, evolutionary pressure to rectify uh, those states. Because evolution is only a force till the reproductive years. After that, if you die of Alzheimer's or diabetes or cardiovascular events, there is no evolutionary pressure exerted on those events. That's an important biological principle to, to think of, is, uh, is the force of evolution operates till your reproductive years and post that, there is no evolutionary, there's no gain for the species to prevent you dying of Alzheimer's. <laughs> Outside the wisdom we can impart to future generations, of course. But in terms of biology, where does evolution meet immortality? Because if we can understand what makes cells die, can we keep them immortal? Are we, are we going for the fountain of youth? Image? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I think there's a huge difference between aging and death, uh, not entirely understood. Some sort of the fountain of youth would be uh, stem cells that perpetuate. Uh, but if you have stem cells that are immortalized, that's tantamount to having cancer. So I think you're in a catch-22. It's very difficult to think of uh, immortality simply by preventing cell death, I think. Uh, and when you think of aging and, and why species age and why they age at different rates, why do you have now species that are described, uh, certain sharks that, that are alive 500 years, I think that's the longest lifespan. Uh, trees that are around much longer, four or 5,000 years. Why do certain species live long? and others for a short time, when e evolutionary biology would tell us that only thing that's important is propagation. So in that case, why should you have a long-lived species? So I think these are fundamental questions, remain unanswered. And, and, and maybe the concept of immortality is really not just, as you say, around cell death, it's around resetting the homeostasis as we age around resetting homeostasis, and I think one can think about relative immortality. I think that uh, a better way to think of it is that can you become older in a healthier manner? Uh, and maybe that, for the foreseeable future, is a reasonable goal. Certainly, if you look at life expectancy, uh, what it was 100 years ago versus what it is now in the developed world, it has increased by 20, 30 years, and that's a tremendous gain. If we can increase it by another 10 years, uh, that would be huge, but with that come the attendant risks of neurodegeneration. And so I think that's the 
it's a double-edged sword. So what advice would you give, given that, to any budding young scientist out there who's thinking about moving into this field of biology and cell death and cell growth? Well, I would tell any young scientist is that if you're driven by curiosity, if you feel you have an explorer in you, then you should look at science. I would say a career in science is very rewarding if you're a curious person and is very unrewarding and frustrating if you're not a curious person because most of the time you fail at what you do. And if you don't have a <laughs> That's genuine, very true. <laughs> most hypotheses don't pan out. Don't pan out. Most experiments don't work. And uh, you have to be very driven by curiosity. You have to be like the explorers of old. You have to have that sort of drive and curiosity to really be, to really enjoy the life of a researcher because uh, there are many easier ways to make a living. You clearly have this curiosity. What really got you interested in this, this journey as a scientist? It's, it's, it's uh, difficult to pin down. I was uh, always uh, intrigued by explorers. I was uh, intrigued by Greek mythology and then the uh, Egyptian uh, history. But then I found out about science and uh, the mysteries of science. I think what was... Uh, uh, a profound uh, event in my life sounds seems trivial in hindsight is my parents got a series of time life books uh, on science the scientist uh, time and travel things like that and opening the up beautiful those pages, pictures and beautiful mm -hmm. pictures that interviews with scientists mathematics and and you know opening up those uh, pages made me realize that you know while I maybe a couldn't be an explorer of the Amazon or uh, do something like that. I could be an explorer. I could find new worlds, and those new worlds were in science. So where do you think your field will be five years from now, ten years from now? I think it's moving at a ferocious pace. Uh, there's a realisation that uh, inflammation uh, is the bedrock of many pathologies. I think the, one of the big surprises was that uh, even diseases like schizophrenia that would have you would have never thought would have an inflammatory component to them, that the most powerful genetic susceptibility factor is with the inflammatory protein and known as complement, that uh, for Alzheimer's disease, that uh, most of the genetic susceptibility uh, genes are uh, mapped or their expression maps to microglial cells. These microglial cells are central to uh, inflammation in the central nervous system. So this has uh, propelled the field to uh, greater heights. And I would say that in five years' time, what we're going to see is a much keener appreciation for the importance of uh, inflammatory processes uh, in human disease, uh, in human disease that you hadn't suspected them to play a role in. And of course in your own work together with others in the field, 
really identifying certain toggles like the BCL2 family of proteins that are anti part of the anti-death pathway. You know, you've shown that by targeting these, you can actually you know, flick a switch, so to speak. Yes, so we, we are very excited about the other forms of cell death, uh, you know, uh, uh, after the success of BCL2, we are looking at uh, necroptotic death uh, now with, uh, we have a small molecule inhibitor to uh, rip kinase 1, which is a component of the necroptotic pathway that we are hoping to uh, uh, develop in the clinic. Um, we also have done um, work on pyroptotic death and how that uh, plays, uh, in our mind, a, a centrally important role in uh, septic shock, which is a huge unmet medical need. It's responsible for 8 million deaths a year, uh, more than all the cancers combined. So uh, even an incremental advance in these areas would have uh, profound benefit. So I think uh, death research is, uh, is strong, and through that, we will uh, eventually be able to prolong lives in a meaningful fashion. Well, indeed, we live because we die. Exactly. Vishva, it's been a delight. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk with Vishva. He impresses upon me how his learnings affect many fields. We've learned today that cell death is a part of life. Now, nowhere is this better illustrated than neurons. Next episode, we're going to do a deep dive into how neurons work and when they go awry. It's going to be super interesting, so don't miss it. In the meantime, keep telling your science fans about us, like us on Facebook and Twitter, and most importantly, if you haven't already, subscribe and rank us on iTunes. If you have, thank you. And now for me, it's back to the lab. Yeah.